Today's sermon comes from Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled with him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In Ed Welch's book, uh, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave, he says this, there is a mean street to authentic self-control. Self-control is not for the timid. When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, we also demand of ourselves a hatred for sin. The only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. There is something about war that sharpens the senses. You hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves and you're in attack mode. Someone coughs and you are ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. Now there's certainly a battle against sin that we participate in, but there's a battle that happened long before you participated in the battle. And that was the battle that took place on the cross when God declared an all-out war against sin. I want you to think for a moment as we go into Holy Week and we approach Friday, we approach the crucifixion, think about what happened when Jesus died on the cross. All hell broke loose. Darkness covered the land. Uh, the earth shook. The rocks split. <laughs> The curtain in the temple, this big, thick, massive curtain was torn in two. Why? Why is the cross of Jesus Christ a battlefield? Now, to answer this, we're going to answer three questions. Number one, what is the battle? Number two, how does Christ win the battle? And then number three, how do you live in Christ's victory? Now, let's start with the first question. If the cross is a battlefield, then what exactly is the battle? Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. It's talking about captivity. It's talking about there's a, there's a battle in play. Now, what is meant by philosophy and empty deceit? Well, it actually reads uh, empty and deceptive philosophy. Now, we have a very narrow view of what philosophy is, but in the first century, 
philosophy represented virtually any system of thought, any system of thought. And what Paul's saying here is empty and deceptive. Deceptive meaning that it, that it promises something and delivers something completely different, that it's misleading. And empty meaning that there's, there's no power at all in it. And so what we're going to look at here is what, what were the, the empty and deceptive systems of thought in Paul's day that he might be speaking to here, and then we're going to look at what it means for us today. So let's, let's start with, he, he lists two categories of empty and deceptive thought or systems of thought, right? He talks about according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world. So let's look at human tradition. What does that mean? You know, we're not crystal clear. We don't know exactly what is meant by human tradition there, but it does remind us of Jesus' critique of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You remember he critiqued them for following their own traditions and not the word of God that they developed this system of rules and laws that went far beyond what God commanded. And they, and they held people to it and said, you got to obey all of these if you want to be right with God. In Paul's other letters, he talks about the, the circumcision party or the Judaizers, which those were the ones that said, yes, you know, believing in Christ is good, but it's Christ. Plus, you really need to follow certain parts of the law of Moses, especially circumcision, right? So believe in Christ and get circumcised to complete your salvation. And we see that in verse 11, Paul's uh, giving support to that by describing what circumcision really is in Christ. And then in verse 14, we read the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, right? There's demands. And these were being placed, this is the human tradition, right? We can call it a set of rules that you must adhere to to at least complete your salvation. Paul's saying, don't be caught, don't be taken captive by that. The second category, elements, spiritual elements or, or elemental spirits, right, of the, of the world. What are we speaking about there? Well, that word, elemental spirits, is actually just one word in the original language, and it's elements. It literally means the, the materials of this world, air, water, fire, earth. And the reason that translators tack on spirits to it or call it elemental spirits is because ancient people worshiped those things. They worshiped the fire, the water, the earth, the air. They made gods out of them. They tried to appease them. We see it in, uh, in Exodus with the 10 plagues. What were the 10 plagues? They were all this, this uh, confronting of the Egyptian gods. So the, the plague of blood in the Nile River was a confrontation of the Egyptian god of the Nile. The plague of darkness was a confrontation of the Egyptian god of the sun or the sun god, right? So you had all of these elemental spirits that people would, would worship and they would try to appease these gods. So if they wanted rain on their crops, they would do a, a rain dance. They'd do whatever it takes to get the rain god to send rain. So Paul's saying, don't, don't be taken captive by that. And what, and what we learn in each of these is that what is behind these these false, deceptive, empty systems of thought, whether it's according to human tradition or elemental spirits of the world, that what lies behind it is the enemy. You say, how, how do we know that? Well, if you go down to verse 15 and read verse 15, you have to ask the question, who is disarmed by the cross of Christ? What's Paul say? Well, the rulers and authorities are disarmed. That's speaking of the demonic. It's speaking of the evil one. 
We read it in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 to 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the, what? Schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. Rulers and authorities, there it is again. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, so that the devil is behind, the devil's behind every empty and deceptive philosophy or system of thought. He's behind them all. The scriptures call him the, uh, the accuser of the brothers, call him a father of lies. He's called, um, a, he masquerades as an angel of light. He prowls around like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. Right? So behind these false thoughts and these false ideas and, and, and philosophies is the devil. And that's why these are enslaving. Behind this false philosophy or this untrue philosophy is an animating power. And it's the demonic. And so that's why we read in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive, right? It's enslaving, it's captivity, it's imprisonment. Verse 14, that stood against us with its legal demands. It's demanding, it asks a lot of you. These, these empty meaning powerless, deceptive, misleading, systems of thought are enslaving. They capture you. They capture you and they, they don't deliver what they promise. They're empty and they're powerless. So let's put this all together. What does this mean today? What are potentially the empty and deceptive systems of thought today that can take your heart captive, behind which the evil one is working. Now, what I want to do is talk about the two categories again, human tradition and elemental spirits of the world. What can fall underneath this? Let's start with human tradition. And let me give you a couple thoughts around uh, an empty and deceptive system of thought that's according to human tradition that can take your heart captive. Now, the first one is, is summarized by a phrase that I've heard often, and maybe you've heard it. And it says this, God helps those who help themselves. Have you ever heard that phrase? God helps those who help themselves. That's not biblical. You won't find that in the Bible. What that does, God helps those who help themselves, sets up God to be a responder. So if you, if you work hard enough on your life, on your faith, on your obedience, if you work hard enough, then God will move in to help you. That is actually no different than the pagan religions that Paul is addressing here, which says, if you want rain on your crops, do a rain dance to the rain God, and he'll send you rain for your crops. He'll help you. It's the, it's the Christianized version. God helps those who help themselves. It's the anti-gospel. It basically says that if you can purchase God's help by how hard you work, it's the anti-gospel. Satan loves it. He loves it. Because it puts you in this place of captivity. Why? Because you never, ever, ever get the help you really want. You never, ever get the deliverance that you're really looking for. And according to this system of thought, what's that mean? You're not working hard enough. So if you're not getting the help and the deliverance that you want, then you need to work harder to get God to give you that help. You see, it's, ens it's enslaving. 
And so if, if you're not getting the help, you start to go, well, I'm not working hard enough. So I'll go to Barnes and Noble, to the self-help section, find something to work hard on, right? Or I'll give you the maybe more positive, maybe one that more dials in is, I'm gonna really ramp down on the spiritual disciplines in my life. Prayer, reading the word, worship, the spiritual disciplines are great. But they're not meant to be the way that you get God to help you or to get God to give you something. The spiritual disciplines are so that you get God, that you enjoy relationship with God. But when you get it flipped around, it, it, it's this endless cycle where you're enslaved. Right? And treating God no different than uh, pagan religions would treat their gods. Okay? That, that's one. Number two, under human tradition, and I'll call this a, a second deceptive empty system of thought. And that is the belief that your suffering is a result of your sin and lack of faith. Now, let me just speak. I'm not speaking big picture. All suffering, all brokenness is a result of sin. Genesis chapter three, right? That, we were plunged into a world of sin by our first parents. I'm speaking here of the equation, right? That, that goes something like this. I, I'm suffering, because I'm suffering, I, I must be doing something wrong. There must be some sort of sin in my life or something that God's not pleased with. And basically, this is the view that God has a bug zapper on him. And, and when you somehow cross that line and you get headlong into sin or being wrong, he's gonna, he's gonna zap you. He's gonna punish you. We see this in the scriptures, old and new, in the book of Job. Job experiences this horrendous suffering. What do his friends say to him? Job, you know, we read his suffering and it is beyond what we can fathom. It is, it is awful suffering. And his friends say what? Job, you need to repent. You're suffering because you've done something wrong. Move to the New Testament, John chapter nine. Jesus and his disciples are walking along and they come across a man blind at birth. And what do the disciples say to Jesus? Who sinned, this man or his parents? And what does Jesus say? Neither, but so that the work of God could be displayed in his life. In other words, the same reason that Job suffered, so that the glory of God could be displayed. Now you say, but what about Hebrews 12? In Hebrews 12, it says, endure hardship as discipline. Endure suffering as discipline. There's a big difference, a massive difference between discipline and punishment. You see, discipline is about conviction. Punishment is about accusation. Conviction and therefore discipline drives you to Christ. Accusation and therefore punishment drives you to self-loathing and despair. There's a big difference between the two. And this is an enslaving system of thought. This idea that I am suffering because of, I have sinned or my faith isn't strong enough. Let me give you an example. I have a friend whose wife died of cancer. And as she was approaching the uh, end of her battle with cancer in the hospital, and approaching her death, there were a couple of Christians that walked into the hospital and walked into her room, well-meaning, and they knew that she was a believer. She was a follower of Christ. 
And they said to her, if your faith is strong enough, God will heal you. Now you do the math on that. What happens if she doesn't get healed of her cancer? Where is she left according to that system of thought? My faith's not strong enough. So she's approaching her death, questioning her faith. Is it strong enough? And probably if you take it to the extreme, questioning salvation. It's an enslaving system of thought that puts you in captivity. Ultimately, it's accusation. Ultimately, it drives you to self-loathing and despair. It doesn't drive you to Christ because that's not what punishment and accusation do. Discipline and conviction drive you to Christ. Let me look at the last category here, elemental spirits of the world. What would a deceptive system according to elemental spirits of the world, look like today? Well, remember that elemental spirits, is, it really just reads elements or materials. Now, ancient people, first century, right? In other parts of the world today, that's a real, that's a real um, dynamic where, where people worship the sun god or the rain god, or you know, they do the rain dance, whatever it may be. We don't, in the West, we don't connect with that. We say, I, I hear that, but I, that's so far from me. Remember, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. At the core of this is materials, right? But the, the materials of this world. And in parts of the world like Africa, they may, they may spiritualize materials and worship them. In the West, we materialize the materials and worship them. And so it, for us, it looks like something called materialism. Anytime you attach an ism to something, you have a system of thought. Anytime you attach an ism to something, it's a way of life. It's a system of thought. It's how I should live, how I will live. And so materialism says I will worship material stuff, meaning if I get the bigger house, I'll be happy. If I get this car, I'll be happy. If I get this iPhone or this gadget, I'll be happy. Or if I get that job making that money, I will be happy. The problem is, once you get that thing, it doesn't deliver the happiness that you thought it would. And so where are you left? As long as you're stuck in materialism, you say, well, there's another material that will make me happy. So you dream about the bigger house or the, the better car. It's an endless cycle. It's enslaving. Now, wh why do I spend all this time talking about this? Because there's a real battle. There is a real battle that is waging for your heart. That these empty, powerless, deceptive, misleading systems of thought are constantly vying to take your heart captive. It's why Paul says, see to it. It's like, it's, it's look out, <laughs> exclamation point, beware. That constantly you're being, there's a battle going on. And until you understand that, the rest of it won't mean much. So if there's a real battle, the second question, how does Christ win the battle? How does Christ win this battle that is waging? First, note the description of Christ in verses nine and 10. It says, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily 
and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, in talking about how Christ wins the battle, why do I start here and not just at the cross? Because if you don't understand that Christ is the head of all rule and authority, you will make him a victim of the cross. And Christ wasn't a victim at the cross. He didn't just, for, from his arrest in the garden to his crucifixion, he didn't just leave his power behind for 24 hours. He didn't just suspend his kingship and become a victim for a day. No, this is the Christ who's head of all rule and authority. The soldiers, the rulers, even the chief priests and elders, they, they mocked him towards this end, didn't they? When he was hanging on the cross, they said, hey, if you're king, then come off. If you're the head of all rule and authority, then come off the cross. See, their, their, their understanding was if he doesn't come off the cross, then certainly this isn't the king or the son of God or God in the flesh. Look at the garden of Gethsemane when he's getting arrested. What does Peter do? Peter's gonna help this poor little victim, Jesus, from getting arrested for this awful crime. So what's he do? He cuts off the, the ear of the servant of the high priest. I think he missed. I think he was probably chopping his head in half. And he missed and hit his ear. And what does Jesus do? He turns to Peter and says, put your sword away. Do you not know that I could appeal to my father and have 12 legions of angels come and rescue me right now? See, when you understand that Jesus is king, head of all rule and authority, then you understand that the cross is a massive, intentional display of his power. That he chose with great power to stay on that cross that he chose not to come off. Why? Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You know, the, the word uh, disarmed, it means to strip. It means to strip or to take off clothing. It means that, that Jesus stripped Satan of his power at the cross. You say, how? Well, what was Satan's power that had to be stripped? Look at verse 14. The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That was Satan's power, the debt. I was reading this past January. There was an article in uh, the 24-7 Wall Street blog that was titled this. Americans are ashamed to admit credit card debt. Now listen to, the, listen to the opening paragraph of this article. There is apparently a stigma attached to carrying credit card debt. More than a third of Americans say they would be embarrassed to let others know that they are not paying off their credit card debt in full every month. More than 40% say they believe they will be judged by family and friends because of credit card debt. And nearly 50% say they would be less interested in dating someone 
Who has credit card debt? The surprising thing is that Americans' average credit card debt is $15,355. And then it goes on. The, the, the executive of the firm that did the survey went on to say this. It's no surprise that shame about debt isn't necessarily productive in preventing or eradicating it. Shame doesn't guarantee success. The only way to pay off debt is to face it head on and make a plan to get rid of it. Now, according to this article, there is tremendous shame and embarrassment surrounding credit card debt. That it's enslaving. That it's, it's, it takes you captive. Why? Well, because the credit card company, the bank, has power over you. They've got power over you. Listen, this is nothing compared to the debt of sin. The shame that hidden sin that nobody else knows about brings to your heart. The embarrassment of, of public sin that everybody knows about. The accusations, the judgment of the evil one who accuses you, who because of your sin launches statements like you're not worthy. You're a failure. You don't deserve God's grace. See, the record of debt that stands against us is enslaving. And it is what Satan uses. And it's the power he has to hang, just to hang it over your head. And what Jesus is saying here, what Paul is saying through Christ in verse 15 is Christ's death on the cross pays the debt in full. Takes away the debt and therefore disarms the rulers and authorities, the evil one, so that you don't have to listen to the accusations anymore. You don't have to listen to the lies anymore because that debt is gone. And the enslaving power that he has over you is gone. And I love the, I love the end of verse 15 or the middle of it. And he put them to open shame. What's that speaking to? Next Sunday, the resurrection came out of the grave and that was, it was openly shaming the evil one and putting in full reality what Jesus had accomplished. Why is the cross a battlefield? There's a real battle. There's a battle for your heart. There are deceptive and empty systems of thought in this world and this culture that are constantly trying to take you captive. Jesus won the battle by what? Paying the debt in full so that that debt that stood against you, that Satan used to accuse you and say you're not worthy and you're a failure, it's gone. You don't have to listen anymore to those accusations. You're free from it. And that leads us to the third question then. Finally, how do you live in Christ's victory? Now, before I go into this, let me say this is where the train can get off the tracks really quick. Because there's a lot of talk about victorious Christian living that is detached from Christ. They can actually go right back into verse eight. These, these deceptive and empty systems of thought like God helps those who help themselves. Right? That, that kind of stuff can get into this victorious Christian living and it's detached from Christ and sends you right back into the problem in verse eight, captivity. 
So what does this mean? What does it mean to live in Christ's victory that he accomplished on the cross? First, before we get to your response and what you do, we're gonna look at what God does to you and in you because that's about all of what verses 10, and 13, 10 to 13 are talking about. Verses 10 to 13, four verses, you'll notice it's all passive language. And what I mean by that is it's stuff that is done to you and in you and for you. It's not stuff you do to yourself. Look at verse 10. You have been filled in him, in Christ. You don't fill yourself. God does that, right? Uh, Verse 11, in him you were circumcised by the circumcision of Christ. You don't circumcise yourself. Well, (laughs) that could be painful. What's Christ saying here? Right, physical circumcision that was painful. That, re- that, that, that it was a removing, right? A cutting off. We're circumcised in Christ now that Jesus has cut off our sin. How? By paying the debt in full. He's cut it off. He's taken it away, right? You don't circumcise yourself. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him. You didn't bury yourself with Jesus. You didn't raise yourself with Jesus. God did this. Verse 13, God made you alive together with him. You didn't make yourself alive if you're in Christ this morning. God made you alive. God did that. All, listen, all of verses 10 to 13 are describing this beautiful in Christ language that you are united to Christ and you didn't do it. You didn't do it. God did it. And so the first step to understanding how you live in Christ's victory is just understanding what God has done for you, in you, and to you. That you're alive in him that God did that work. What that means is because you're united to Christ, what is true of Jesus Christ today is true of you. What is true of Christ is true of you. Now, with that as the foundation of the first step to living in Christ's victory, recognizing what God has done to you, now let's talk about how do you respond. In this entire passage, there's two commands. There's two commands in the entire passage. One is in verse eight, and that's see to it, that you don't take it, get taken captive, right? That's a command. It's, a, it's kind of a, it's a defensive command. Don't get taken captive. The other command is in verse six. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. There it is. That's the command, walk in Christ. What does that mean? It means be rooted be rooted in Christ. What's that mean? Being rooted in Christ means being rooted in God's word because John 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the word. And the way that you're rooted in Christ is being rooted in the word of God or the word of Christ, Christ's word. It's being rooted here so that when the empty and deceptive systems of thought like God helps those who help themselves, or I'm suffering because God's punishing me, or if I had that house, I'd be happy, or if I had that job with that money, I'd be happy, right? Those are the deceptive systems of thought. When you're rooted in God's word, right? you can discern those and not live by them and not believe them because when you start believing them, guess what? They send you into despair and self-loathing. There's no life there. They're empty. They're powerless. And so being rooted in Jesus' word 
you can discern the accusations. You can discern the lies. You can refuse to live in them. Let me just real briefly speak personally what this has meant to me in the past 24 hours, okay? We've all had rough 24 hours, right? I had one, just loss of perspective and all that. And in the CBR reading this towards the end of the week, Philippians 4, right? Paul says, God will what? Supply every need of yours through his riches in Christ Jesus. What he doesn't say there, and this is what has been just grabbing hold of my heart, is that God supplies every need of yours, not every want. And I've had to camp out on that. God supplies every need, not every want, out of his riches in Christ Jesus. When you're rooted in God's word, when you're rooted in Christ's word, you're rooted in Christ. And he helps you discern the lies and the empty and the deceptive systems of thought that can take your heart captive. There's a tree, and I'll close with this. There's a tree that lives in the desert. It's called the mesquite tree. And a mesquite tree is anywhere from a few feet tall to 15 feet tall. But the most impressive part of the mesquite tree is its taproot. And a taproot is that one root that goes straight down. The taproot of the mesquite tree can go up to 150 to 200 feet below the surface. It's the, it, it is the, the deepest documented taproot there is. In fact, they found a live taproot of a mesquite tree over 160 feet below the surface in a copper mine. At the surface, the mesquite tree is what? Dealing with dry arid, waterless conditions where there's no life. And so it sends that taproot and it keeps going and going and going until it finds water for life. Listen, this is a broken world. And every one of you to some degree is aware of that. And at the surface of this broken world are a lot of systems of thought that are empty, they're powerless. There's no life in them. And yet in the midst of the, the surface of our brokenness, there is the in, incredible water of life that comes from Jesus Christ. And there, are, there is water in Jesus Christ that will help you survive the deepest of droughts. That's what it means to walk in Christ. That's what it means to be rooted in Christ. And so I leave you with a question. Are you rooted in Christ? Are you rooted in his word? Are you living in his victory? Let's pray. Father, we are well aware of the battle. We're well aware of the brokenness all around us. We're well aware of the deceptive and empty systems of thought that don't give life. And yet, Father, this morning, we're also aware that your son, Jesus Christ, has won the battle. That at the cross, he, he took away the record of debt that stood against us. 
that he paid it in full, and that that debt that had us enslaved and captive is gone. And with that, Father, we know and believe that he disarmed the rulers and authorities, the demonic Satan who, who accuses and is a father of lies and prowls around like a roaring lion. And we know that because of your work on the cross, Jesus, that power that he held, at least a, a, a significant amount of it is gone, though he's still active. So Father, I pray this morning that your people would root themselves in your son, Jesus. And Father, I pray for those that maybe are here that are not in Christ, that maybe are feeling the accusation, feeling that you're a failure, you're worthless, you, you don't deserve the grace of God, all those lies that come from the evil one, that you might reveal those and that they may see, maybe for the first time, that Jesus, you went to the cross and you paid down their debt. And they might respond as we read in verse six by receiving you, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. Father, as we come to the table this morning, would you speak to our hearts and this meal, would it nourish us? And in the dry and arid conditions of this broken world, would it be like that taproot that goes deep and that Holy Spirit through it, you would give us spiritual nourishment and life that we would come alive in Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.